Welcome back to Spotlight 19. This is Justin Tracy. And this is Saja Tracy for episode 13. For several weeks now, we've been unable to be in the same location recording the show at the same time, so um, we're happy to be hosting the show together today. Today we'll discuss John Fazzo's July votes, his trip to Israel, and we'll be playing our interview with Brian Flynn, our seventh congressional candidate. Uh, before we get to all that great stuff, just wanted to tell Justin how proud I am of him for asking John Fazzo a question during the August 31st town hall. Uh, Justin asked whether John Fazzo would be committing to more transparency for his office, and Fazzo actually said he would, and he even agreed to come on the show. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to finally meet Representative Fazzo. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, at the beginning, I was sitting in the second row back, and Representative Fazzo introduced himself and shook hands with several of the people around him, including myself. Um, I thought that was very diplomatic, but it did catch me off guard. My instinct was to be courteous towards him, even though I was a bit uncomfortable since I have a lot of disdain for many of the things that he's done as congressman. To me, he's an extension of Donald Trump, so it's hard not to feel resentment towards him. What was it like to get up and ask him a question in person? I've been able to ask him one via telephone, but I haven't had the opportunity yet to actually meet him. Yeah, it was a little surreal. Um, I'd submitted a question beforehand since Move Forward New York representatives were reviewing questions, making sure that there were no duplicates, but I was still surprised to hear my name called. I felt like I had an immediate responsibility to being one of the few people to be able to ask him a question publicly. That seemed like a big deal. Yeah, so Justin and I were both lucky enough to attend Senator Kirsten Gillibrand's town hall a few weeks ago. And to me, as someone who was watching the FASO town hall, there was definitely a marked difference between hers and his town hall, the one that Justin attended. Definitely. To me, the key differences between the town halls were the energy at Senator Gillibrand's, the crowd seemed a lot more positive, whereas at Fazzo's, it was contentious and you could tell people were upset. The questions at Gillibrand's hinged on what to do going forward, while at Fazzo's, people were mad about what he's done so far. And uh, they, they really just kind of wanted to have, to have a go at him, I think. There was... There was a lot of tension in the room at Fazzo's and Gillibrand's people appreciated her showing up. But at Fazzo's, it seemed like he was doing us all a big favor, you know, being there. So, yeah, definitely very different experiences. So at Fazzo's Town Hall, it wasn't just an audience full of supporters, was it? No, uh, it was, um, I think, around between 150 and 200 people total, 60 of which were his supporters. It seemed like they clapped whenever he made a point or where he seemingly perhaps won an argument or had a sharp rebuttal. He, if he'd won the argument, the Republicans just clapped. So it seemed rather staged almost that part. For instance, when Fazzo mentioned that he couldn't respond to the Charlottesville attack in a timely manner because he was in Israel and they clapped for that. I mean, what's that about? There was a police presence, which was different from Gillibrand's where there were no police, only, you know, for the security on going inside. The sheriffs seemed to kind of like weighing in once the heckling, some heckling started. They all kind of started weighing in on, on trying to keep the crowd uh, together, but it was it was civilized. I mean, the the interesting thing was is that no Republican supporter there asked a question. Uh, it's amazing to me that although it's clear that none of these questions were coming from his supporters, some people are still repeating on social media things like the questions were pre-screened and that the town hall was a sham. And that's really something that Glenn Gare, our guest in the last episode and Move Forward New York, has had to grapple with. The fact that some were really angry that the town hall was too soft on Fazo. Well, I would say that it wasn't too soft on Fazo. 
and uh, he didn't get to read the questions beforehand. Move Forward New York chose the questions. And I could tell that because I saw where the questions were and I saw where he was standing and there was no communication between the two parties during that time in the beginning. So people would write their questions on a card as they entered. So it wasn't pre it wasn't pre-screened. Uh he actually he did get, actually get pretty rattled towards the end it seemed. I, I think he was irritated because there were some kind of um hecklers. I, I I don't think it was good for the space to have that. But um you know people need to be able to express themselves. The only difference between this town hall and others I think was the limited number of tickets and that move forward New York had agreed to keep order in the room and despite my efforts i was called to soft on fazo this week as well when on one of the facebook groups i was accused of being an apologist because i disseminated the fact that fazo supports daca which he does sure there are a lot of people out there who kind of want to just portray john fazo negatively and it's important to remember that we're here to show the facts and it's alarming to me that people are attacking people who are trying to shed light on the facts and that's something that happened to Justin. He posted in one of the Facebook groups that, oh, John Fazzo actually does support DACA, which is uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which has been in the news a lot lately. Um, it was announced over Labor Day weekend that the administration would be ending DACA. Uh, DACA actually allowed 800,000 young people in America who had been brought to this country illegally as children to come out of the shadows and finally be able to obtain a work permit and driver's license. Right. And DACA was a policy pursuant to executive order put in place by President Obama after Congress repeatedly failed to pass the DREAM Act, which would have provided these individuals with a path to citizenship. So my understanding is that FASO supports DACA. Yeah, so while Fazel's record on immigration is fairly mixed, for example, he doesn't support sanctuary cities, and he voted in favor of a bill that actually places higher and harsher punishments on illegal immigrants convicted of a crime. He does support DACA, and he's actually a co-sponsor of a bill called the Bridge Act that codifies DACA, which was an executive order, as Justin mentioned, into law. Well, the question is, is Fazo only endorsing the bill now, now that he sees so many of his constituents speaking out against him? And is this district trending left? Well, Fazo actually supported and signed on as a co-sponsor for the Bridge Act back in April. However, the Bridge Act does not offer a path to citizenship. That's what the DREAM Act was. It would look at these people who are contributing to society, who came here as children, and it would offer them, after a certain time period, you can get a green card, you can become a permanent resident, and eventually a citizen. So what the Bridge Act does, it just extends DACA. It just gives people... The protection against deportation, which is great, but it doesn't actually offer them a meaningful path to citizenship. Yeah, Bridge seems like it would just keep dreamers in limbo forever. It does, but we'll see what happens in Congress. Fazel hasn't come out in favor of the DREAM Act. There is one bill in the House and in the Senate that has bipartisan support. The DREAM Act has been kicking around for 16 years which is pretty amazing. And the public perception of it now is at the point where the majority of Americans support it. But John Fazzo still has not come out and said he'll support the DREAM Act and that he thinks that the, the DREAMers, the children that were protected under DACA, deserve a path to citizenship. Congress just returned to Washington last week as of this recording, and they've only voted in favor of a relief bill for victims of Hurricane Harvey. Welcome back to Spotlight 19. Before we head into our interview with Brian Flynn, I wanted to talk about some of John Fazzo's July votes that we hadn't had the opportunity to cover yet. First up, there was a rollback on regulations for pipelines and other energy infrastructure that cross international borders. Representative Fazzo voted in favor of this bill. To me, that just seems like a setup for the Pilgrim Pipeline 
The pipeline that was proposed to go right through New York 19 and many listeners' backyards, so it's easier for the pipeline to cross the Canadian border. Right, and a lot of these regulatory rollback bills, and there have been many, and if you go back to some of our episodes, a lot of them are discussed, uh, they're pitched in this deceptive way, and they are very hard to understand. For example, the bill we just discussed was pitched as an energy infrastructure bill, but once you get in the weeds of the bill, you see that that includes things like pipelines for natural gas and oil. There's another infrastructure bill that requires coordination among federal, state, and local agencies for environmental reviews when building a natural gas pipeline, which John Faso also voted in favor of. What I've learned by doing the podcast is that when these bills require coordination among the levels of government, it usually means we're making things easier and faster since the federal government sets the minimum level of environmental review. It will speed up the local and state environmental reviews for a natural gas pipeline. Why we need more natural gas pipelines is confusing to me. In New York, you have a choice now to decide where you get your energy from. And we did that just last week. For just a few more dollars per month, our central Hudson supply will come from wind farms. A lot of these July votes seem to relate to the environment. There was also one bill that Faso voted in favor of for a road to be built through a wildlife refuge in Alaska. Yeah, so July wasn't the best month for the environment in terms of John Faso's voting record, was it? Uh, There's one more vote I really wanted to mention, and that's Faso's vote in favor of rolling back a provision in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that prohibited mandatory arbitration clauses and allowed consumers, for example, credit card holders, to sue a company rather than be required to go to arbitration. Now, arbitration is a forum that you don't have the same rights as you would as in a court. Arbitration is often skewed in favor of the corporation rather than the consumer, which makes these types of clauses so dangerous. So with that one, it's come up again now since we since we prepped for the podcast, the Equifax credit rating breach that has affected millions and millions in their terms of service. The customers are not allowed to sue them in a class action lawsuit since their clause requires arbitration. Right. So what John Faso actually voted for is these big corporations, big banks, they don't have to allow their consumers and people who are using their services, they no longer have to allow those people to use a court system. They can allow mandatory arbitration. And that was something that the Obama administration worked really hard to provide that protection to consumers that if if you're wronged by one of these big corporations, big banks, you can vindicate your rights in court. Now you can't do that. You might have to go to mandatory arbitration where the arbitrators are picked by the corporations themselves. And many, many people who use these services don't understand what arbitration is. Yeah, so much rollback and so little time. Let's talk a little bit about John Fazzo's trip to Israel, which was his explanation for the delay in his statement against the violence in Charlottesville, which he took over 48 hours to comment on. Yeah, so John Fazzo, along with a number of other freshman members of Congress, participated in a week-long fact-finding trip to Israel during the August recess. Is this trip paid for by taxpayers then? No, it's actually paid for by the American Israeli Education Foundation, a nonprofit that dedicates 55% of its budget to funding these kinds of trips for people to go and visit Israel. And who's funding this organization? I mean, I don't know everyone exactly, but Sheldon Adelson is the casino magnate who donates heavily to a lot of the super PACs. Uh, he's one of the prominent donors of this organization. Um, during this trip, Fazo visited different parts of Israel, and he also met with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Yeah, despite the fact that Fazo is not currently serving on any foreign relations committees in the House, and the Prime Minister is currently under investigation for corruption. This trip has actually been called the Jewish Disneyland trip in past years, and it was tinged with scandal a few years ago when members of the of Congress actually went skinny dipping in the Dead Sea. Oof. Couldn't Fazo have just spent the week here in the district? 
I mean, the replaces to Skinny Dip here, although coal mining waste might be coming upstream soon. For someone who talks about people leaving the district, it seems like he left it when he could have been here and meeting with more people. And I'll just note that some of the other congressmen on the trip did respond and condemn the Charlottesville violence immediately, even though they were on the Israel trip too. So why the wait? I mean, that's what it seems like when he was answering your question. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because he has come out against and condemned these hate groups, and he did so again at the town hall. But my question is, the flight to Israel is 13 hours, so there are 35 hours that were never accounted for, and he couldn't even put together a statement. This is a national crisis, people are talking about it, and it seems pretty par for the course for Faso to always have a delay in speaking out. And one of the explanations I can draw is that he was maybe waiting for a signal from his party or maybe his donors, but, you know, that that's no excuse. Welcome back to Spotlight 19. Now we move to our September 2nd interview with congressional candidate Brian Flynn. Welcome to Spotlight 19, Brian. It's so great to have you, our seventh candidate. I really can't believe it. Uh, So welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you for all the work that you all are doing to get the word out. Great. So let's just jump right in. So much has been made of parachute candidates and people from the city or those who moved to the district to run or who may have a second home here. What can you tell us about your connection to the district? My connection goes back three generations. One of my immigrant Irish grandparents came to Greene County as a bartender in Leeds, which is known as the Irish Alps. And so my father spent his childhood here. About 15 years ago, when Amy and I were looking for a place to raise our children outside the city, my father kept saying, you should go to the Irish Alps. And I kept saying, I don't think the Alps make it to Ireland. (laughs) Uh, But he was referring to um, his childhood home. Uh, And I said, okay, we'll go check out the Catskills. And we came up for a magical weekend uh, back in 2003. And we had, at that point, a six-month-old child. And we decided to build a home. And so we uh, rebuilt a home that had burned down and have been here ever since. Um, Your question about uh, parachuting in, um, nobody chooses to uh, rebuild a 100-year-old home if they're planning to run for Congress 15 years later. Um, My connection to the district is, one, based in that familiar connection, but also it's where my children have spent their childhood. Uh, So it's an important part of of who we are. So are your kids attending school out in Greene County? Yeah, my daughter goes to uh, Hunter Tannersville Central School. Uh, and actually, I had to drop her off at soccer practice there. And it's what's great about that school, she's in seventh grade. Um, but because it's a small school, she gets to play with the high school sports teams. So she's playing with the high school kids in soccer and, and thrilled about it. That's great. Uh, and I also noticed that you did have a residence in the city. Could you could you just clear that yeah, up? Uh, that's a great question for our listeners yeah, because I so think uh, I think one of the issues in the 2016 election was um, this this casting of uh, Zephyr Teachout in this light that she's from the city or she's just here uh, to run. So mm-hmm. I just want to get everything out there for everyone um, yeah. just going forward. I appreciate that. So um, about five, six years ago, we sold our apartment we had in the city, and I shut down my office. Um, Our plan was to transfer up here full time, uh, which a lot of people do. Um, They start with a a second home, and then they decide they fall in love, and they like the people and the community, and they transfer their lives up here. I was uh, doing most of my work out of town. I had no work in Manhattan or around Manhattan. I worked at factories around the country, so I was traveling quite a bit. So we had our plan, and that's why we sold our apartment and started it. Unfortunately, um, at that time, my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Uh, she lives right near the city. So we had to put our plans on hold um, because you put family first, and we rented an apartment. And anyone who's dealt with Alzheimer's knows it's not a linear disease. So we thought it would be a year. We thought it would be two or three years where we could figure out her living arrangements, but it's often um, one step forward, two steps back. 
um, when you're dealing with that disease. So we had to help manage her care and keep our um, keep a residence there. Uh, and it's where we spent most of our time as we've been managing uh, her care. And what that led to is that we kept our voter registration down there because our timing when we were going to be in the area was often, often dependent on my mother, not on us. So sure, I felt more connected. I owned a home up here and wanted to vote up here. But we decided we were just going to keep our voter registration down there until we sorted out the issues with my, with my mother, my mother, which we did recently. Um, and we've been able to find the right care facility for her. And we've therefore been able to transfer full time about um, nine months ago. And we changed our voter registration in November of last year. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you found a good facility for your mom. And I'm sorry to hear about Alzheimer's. It is, you know, one of the most I mean, all diseases have their own difficulties, but it's so hard to see someone fading away in that way. And, you know, my heart goes out to you. Thank you. And actually, a lot of people, a lot of uh, men talk about the influence their dads had on them and how they, their fathers were these inspirational figures. I have none of that. My dad's a great guy. But all of my inspiration came from my mother. Uh, when my brother was killed by terrorists, it was my mother who picked up the fight. When we were kids, she was always picking up the fight. She was the one who um, we had a potential environmental issue with uh, a watershed that we lived near. And she was the one who was taking us out and doing water sampling when we were kids to help uh, combat uh, some uh, contaminants that we had in the water. So she was always the one who picked up the fight. And that's where I kind of get my sense of justice and sense of fight from. Well, speaking of kind of environmental issues, uh, let's talk a little bit about Hurricane Harvey, which has really devastated Texas and East Louisiana communities. It's kind of reminiscent to me about what Hurricane Irene did to this area. Could you tell us more about your experiences with Irene and what plans you have to be able to address this growing trend of 100-year or 500-year storm events, which is in part uh, caused by climate change? Uh Great question. And what I like about it is it has multifaceted, so I can dive in there. Um, like many of your listeners, I was here during Hurricane Irene and um, helped people in Tannersville and Prattsville dig out from the storm and saw the devastation of what happened there. I also saw, saw which we're seeing now in Houston, the role that the community plays uh, and people coming together to help their friends and neighbors. But I also saw the, the importance of having government programs accessible. Uh, and I think what we've learned from Katrina and I hope from Irene and what I've heard this week is that the FEMA relief is actually coming faster than it has in the past. There was an article last night on the fact that people are applying and actually getting relief much faster than uh what happened with Katrina. What's good about that is we've actually learned some lessons and have put some of that into place uh, in our institutions uh, from these disasters because they're going to come more and more. Uh, they are, I believe, and as do most scientists, they are related to climate change. The, we have you know, three 500-year floods in the last few years in Texas alone. Um, when we saw Irene, the, the rebuilding process is as important um, as the search and rescue. Um, and as you go through Prattsville today, you can still see that they made a lot of progress, but there are still opportunities for continued investment to help these communities not only thrive, but also um, avoid these types of uh, disasters again. The other important issue I think we have to learn um, is we have to invest in and focus on local elections because one of the reasons why these floods have such a devastating effect in places like Houston is that there people are not following the recommendations of uh, the Environmental Protection Agency or uh, the Army Corps of Engineers about where you should be doing development and where you shouldn't, and the importance of zoning related to climate change and environmental protection. So one of the things we're seeing more and more in the Catskills is people are focusing on local elections. And one of the things I've been doing this year is saying we need to make sure we have people in the community who are engaged in the local elections and being supportive. There are thousands of seats um, available in 2017 in our district. I think it's 1,100 total seats are, are being in, in 2017. So there's no congressional election, there's no presidential election. But in District 19, whether it's a town board or county legislators or highway superintendents, 1,000 seats are up for election this year. And we all have to focus on and invest in those in order to, to address the, the zoning issues that make us more susceptible to this type of um, environmental disasters. When it comes to, to climate change and how we address it, uh, as um, as Democrats, but also as a society, I've been involved as an environmental activist for almost 30 years. And when I saw the Bush 
administration selling out to the fossil fuel industry in the early 2000s, I upped my environmental activism and I formed a group called Environmental Entrepreneurs. And our goal was to look for private sector solutions with public support. So leverage uh, innovation and investments in technology to help solve environmental problems. The opportunity that that presents is an opportunity for Democrats to work with Republicans. For example, there is now an acceptance uh, among many Republicans of climate change, and there is an acceptance of the need for a, a carbon tax. Jim Baker and George Schultz wrote an op-ed about how they think a carbon tax is a great way of starting to address this issue. We as Democrats need to jump on that window and to say there's a bipartisan opportunity uh, for us right there in order to fix it. When I was uh, working for environmental entrepreneurs, I testified before, before the city council as a business person saying that we needed hybrid taxis to reduce emissions and to improve the environment in New York City as a business person, not just as someone who cared about the environment. The other real opportunity, which was, was, was interesting, is that we, did, we commissioned as business people uh, an economic study to show the economic benefit of recycling. And we presented that, and that actually is one of the reasons why, even after it was stripped out, we brought back recycling uh, to New York in the mid-2000s because we showed the economic benefits. As Democrats, I think what we have to do is not only say what we believe in and, and hold true to that, because we believe that climate change is a real issue, we believe protecting our environment is important to us on a fundamental, even spiritual level, but we also have to look at, all right, so how do we make our ideas, how do we sell them? to other people that might have different value structures. How do we tell them, listen, they're really concerned about the effect of the environment on the economy. Well, let's actually embrace that as part of our rationale to get things done. And that will enable us to achieve things in a bipartisan way. There are more Republicans and independents that are for combating climate change than many of us realize. And I think that's an opportunity for us. That was a long answer to your question. That, so no, that was a great answer to <laughs> the question. And I'm really thinking about it because I think uh, just jumping to the next topic, which kind of ties in here, I agree with you that many Republicans probably do believe that ch climate change is real. And if you go back to 2008, John McCain had it on his platform as one of his points. And But since then, uh, since actually Citizens United, um, there has been this funding of Republicans by these super PACs that are climate deniers, that there are these, you know, big hedge fund people and the Koch brothers that are not supportive of these measures because it'll adversely impact their pocketbooks. So what are your thoughts on uh, this this fact that these, there are these mega donors out there that uh, despite a Republican that may believe in climate change, they're beholden to this donor that doesn't want any more restrictions put on, you know, you just mentioned the carbon tax, uh, something like that. What, what are your thoughts on that? That, that is actually the, the heart of the issue. If you look at the Koch brothers as an example, the reason why they're against climate change is they own the asset. And, the, and that's the fossil fuel asset. If we started to transition to uh, a more renewable uh, sources of energy, the problem is they can't own wind, they can't own solar, right? They can't own the sun. Therefore, their competitive advantage is simply capital and owning. That they're not great businessmen. They don't have innovation as a, their their advantage is the capital that they have and the assets that they own. Once you'd make that asset less valuable, their power dissipates quickly. So. Any of us could go start a, a solar company and set up solar farms and start generating energy and competing with them. Not any of us can go buy a coal mine. And they're counting on that, and they're, they're fighting tooth and nail against th their very existence, and all of their power base comes from that ownership. And I think that's where we, ha once you know that, and as you're going up against that, that's where we have to fight against the special interests. I have been against money in politics forever. Um, I, one thing that occurred to me, why is it so easy for special interests to corrupt uh, our government? How does it happen so easily? And one of the things that I asked is, why are there only 435 members of Congress? Why is it that it only you have only to buy off 216 people? Why did it stop at 435? The population has grown significantly in the last hundred years, but we haven't grown the size. So what we have is a less representative government. We have, we've reinforced the duopoly of two parties. We've reinforced the uh, concentration of wealth and special interest to control the agenda because you're only buying off 216 members of Congress. So in 2012, I looked into this and I found out that it was a piece of legislation passed in the 1920s 
And I wrote an article and I wrote an op-ed for CNN about this issue saying if we want to have a truly representative government that is less susceptible to corruption by special interests, we need greater representation. Right now, it's one representative for 700,000 people. When we established the country as one representative for about 50,000 people, when we set up a government in Iraq, it was one representative for 60,000 people. In uh, European countries, it's around 80 to 100,000 people per minister of parliament. And what it's, what it's done is as we continue to decrease representation, you increase the uh, power of the special interests and their ability to control the agenda. If you had, which I've suggested, 3,000 members of Congress and people said, oh my God, the last thing we need are more politicians. And I said, well, maybe we need more representation and more citizen legislators who do it on a part-time basis, who live in their district and don't spend their time in Washington having lunch with lobbyists. They spend their time listening to constituents and representing the views and needs of constituents. So if I'm successful and it's a long shot, I would love to be able to make this a part-time job and that there were 3,000 of us and everybody that's running in this election could all be elected. I think there's a long way to get there because there's so many... When I bring up this idea, and I I wrote about it in CNN, so it's not a secret idea. When I bring this up, people get horrified because, oh my God, this is is the world... Just because we've done it this way doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. That's really the first time I've heard it, and you can kind of see the look on my face because I'm thinking it over, and it, it sounds it sounds good. I don't know the viability of it in this climate and in the current kind of confines of the system, but it's it's an interesting idea. I mean, that's how we have it in the states that it's a part. You know, if you're a member of the assembly, it's a part time job, in, yeah. at least in New York State and good, good in analogy, New Jersey. Yeah. So. Uh, it is possible. and you This know, won't both- surprise you. The reason why it was originally the law was passed in the 1920s was to disenfranchise the urban voter. When they saw them becoming too powerful, and it was mostly my people, we were immigrants. It was the Irish and the Italian immigrants that were becoming, they were afraid. So the Republicans passed in the 1920s, just capped it at 435 so they could try to maintain control. Just going back and talking about the money in politics, your campaign has raised, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, over a million dollars, which is... Oh, that'd be great. I don't think we've actually gotten to a million yet, but we have over 700,000. You're getting you're getting close, yeah. which is God, I both... Guess, I guess we had good fundraising this morning. <laughs> <laughs> both amazing, but also... It concerns me that you need that much money to be able to run for Congress. And... <laughs> While on one vein, there are a lot of small donations, I did notice that there are a lot of donations of, you know, over $2,500, which for a middle class family is kind of unimaginable to be able to donate to a campaign. Agreed. Uh, So what are your thoughts on on that? And uh, tell us a little bit more about your fundraising. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with you. I think it's absurd that we need... uh, millions of dollars to win a congressional seat. I think it's absurd that we need to go out and raise money from wealthy people to compete. Um, And I'm focused on small dollar donors uh, as much as possible. But I also don't want to make the mistake of of playing a game game on a different field um, or of bringing um, the wrong weapon to the battle. Right now, we are in a battle against big money and against Sean Faso. Um, And I don't want to make the mistake of not uh, of letting my idealism and my belief in small dollar donors uh, prevent us from winning. So if I need to go get like-minded people who want to be supportive of our campaign, I will ask anybody and anyone for money to support our campaign because I believe in what I'm doing. Um, I would love it to not be the case. And we are focused on small dollar uh, donors. But I find that if we if we don't approach this um, as a battle against the Mercers, a battle against um, the donors that come from Nassau County, where John Fassel is from. If we don't um, fight fire with fire, I'm I'm really concerned that we won't be able to compete, and I don't want our idealism to get in the way of us winning. I think the most important thing is that we uh, win this race. The analogy I use, the Electoral College, right? You, We won the popular vote, but we lost the election because we didn't really understand and play by the rules of the game that we were playing, Right. We had to, we, if we had known and really thought about the Electoral College, maybe we would have spent a little bit more time in Wisconsin and Michigan. Hats. 
What's that? Hats. Yeah, people. That's that's our that's our uh, policy here. That uh, the Trump campaign spent the most money on the Make America Great Again hats, and they were giving them out. And I've said this to a few candidates that sometimes people are appreciative that they got a hat. <laughs> it sounds very no, I, silly. No, I love that. Actually, I think we have to, of, we're going to incorporate that into our campaign strategy starting tomorrow. Of, um, and 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 but but to your point though, because I, I love that. If we don't to to um, to stand on principle and lose, um, we're going to be much worse off than we are today. So yes, I've gone out and I've asked everyone I know, people I don't know, I will not take money from anyone that doesn't support our cause. I will not take money quid pro quo. If anybody wants anything from me, then I won't take the money. They just have to simply believe in us. And and the the other thing is, the reason why I put so much of my own money into the campaign is because I want to ensure that people realize, one, I've got skin in the game. I'm not going to ask someone else to write me a check who can't afford it if I'm not willing to put my own resources toward it. The other thing is I want people to know I will not be owned by anyone. I will only take money from people to support me, and I will do whatever it takes to beat John Faso, and I will use whatever resources at my disposal to make that happen. Very interesting. You came out right before my next question was that you have your own money in the game, which is, it's impressive. Uh, I think that sometimes that gets a little bit skewed. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey with some, right now there's a there's a candidate for governor who has a lot of skin in the game and uh, also grew up when John Corzine was governor and he actually put a lot of his own money into the game and that's been cast in a negative light lately. Uh, so I'm glad he just came out ahead. And Yeah, I'm, I'm, glad you brought up, I'm glad you brought up John Corzine and the other gentleman who's running for governor in I think totally they're both blanking on his name. Uh, yeah, they're both Goldman Sachs guys, I believe. Um, I don't work. I never. I don't work at Goldman Sachs. I don't work in investment banking. Uh, I work in factories. I make medical devices that save people's lives. Um, I provide union jobs. Uh, these are middle skill, uh, working class jobs that uh, I've created here in America for a lot of people. So um, the money that I've made has come from blood, sweat, and tears, not just pushing money around uh, on Wall Street. Uh, it's come from hard work and making products that save people's lives in hospitals. Um, I believe, and I've told my kids this, that um, investing in this campaign and investing in fighting back against this extremism is the most important thing we as a family can do. And I said to them, so there might not be quite as much money left over for them to go to college. But I said to them, if we don't win this, then you know maybe they shouldn't go to college. Um, and they, <laughs> first they laughed and then they cried. Um, <laughs> but on a, on a serious note, it is too important right now uh, to not uh, put everything we can into winning this. It, it's too, too important for not just for me or for my family or, or even for the constituents uh, of the in the 19th district. It's too important for the country um, that we that we do something and we do something big and we exhaust every resource to make it happen. I don't know about the trading off college for your kids, but luckily we are in New York State. Where I believe in tuition-free education. Where we're, <laughs> uh, we're for the first time, I think starting this semester, mm-hmm. uh, kids and students will be able to go to all of the great SUNY schools for free. We've seen this rollback of public education from this administration and the first story I saw this morning was that in the Department of Education for the anti-fraud unit of the Department of Education, Betsy DeVos has appointed one of her, you know, for-profit friends. So what are some of your plans for education? I want to go back for a second to your point about college education and a huge expense of college education. Um, It is a huge tax and burden on uh, middle-class families that we've allowed the cost of education to skyrocket well in excess of the cost of living or, more importantly, incomes. And uh, one of the things that I've said is it's not worth it. It's not worth a quarter million dollars to send your kid to school. Um, There's not the return on that investment. And we as a society... Definitely not. As uh, someone who's still <laughs> that. Um, we as a society can do it. For example, um, I uh, helped, um, I had a woman working with me, uh, Pauline Douglas uh, from uh, Jamaica. She was an immigrant and uh, she was doing a great job with her kids. And her daughter, Natalie, uh, was trying to go to one of these colleges, uh, 
fancy college up in Vermont. And she couldn't um, get the money that she needed. And uh, she asked me to co-sign her loan. And I didn't have a lot of money, but I had a good credit rating. It was back in my 20s. So I co-signed on a loan uh, for Natalie. Um, and that loan is still, to this day, $60,000. And every once in a while, I help pay it when she can't make a payment or whatever. But my point is, this, this young woman uh, and her mother, who were struggling to get by, came to a friend, uh, someone they worked with, and I co-signed on the loan. But it's absurd that almost 20 years later, she still has $60,000 in debt. And her interest rate is much higher than you know, the U.S. government's paying. And it's going to a loan servicing firm. And I think that's a fundamental flaw in, in our education model and how we approach it. And I mentioned this the other day at the forum. We have not taken any sort of innovative approach to how we approach education. It hasn't changed not only since the 1950s, and I said this, since the 1500s. People go for four years, they go to the middle of the woods, they they study, and this is a model we tell everyone they should do. And it's if for the rich, it's great. It's, a, it, it's in the rarefied world, the rich, they should send their kids off into the woods and just to study wonderful things. However, for middle-class families that can't afford it, we have to come up with a model that works for them. So I've said, why is it four years and not three? Why can't you get a college degree in three years? And people say, well, it's never been done that way. So maybe we should rethink it because the cost is astronomical and we're not looking out for the students and the families we're, we're, just because it's always been that way. That's why I'm getting it. But I want to get back to your point about public education, the assault on public education. Um, Back in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, we had a similar assault on public education at at that time. There was a big swing towards uh, charter schools and privatization and against public education. So what my wife and I did is rather than just hem and haw and complain about it, we got together with a bunch of people, other people, and helped start a specialized public high school with the assistance and help of the teachers union to show that you can innovate in education and you can do it within the auspices of the Board of Education and the Department of Education and you can do it in a way that works with unions and provides a a better and different education for low-income kids. And this idea of privatizing um, is uh, antithetical to that. And so we actually did it and the school's thriving and doing quite well today. Where is that school? Uh, It's in the Bronx. It's the Bronx Academy of Letters. Um, And what what it says to me is that you can innovate, you can invest in um, education that evolves and changes with the needs of the students. But you also have to fight back against this um, perception that privatization and uh, charter schools that work against unions um, are the way to go. And, and you hear lots of these individual stories about people doing it. And, and the most important thing in districts like ours, this idea of school choice which might work great in densely populated suburbs of Chicago, where Betsy DeVos is from, it doesn't work. My daughter goes to a school that has 18 kids in her grade. What if six of those kids left and took the money with them? All of a sudden, you're stripping out the tax base from the school, and you're destroying uh, the fabric of a community school that's doing a great job educating these kids. And it's because we're um, such a small school because we're not that densely populated. It's a rural area. That her policies and the policies that are being considered by this administration are, are really, uh, and, and supported by John Faso, are really an attack on small towns and rural communities like we have here in the 19th District. Sure. And he's actually almost never mentioned education in any, in, since he's been elected. And, and that's kind of one of the the policies of this administration that will really lead to a deterioration in this district. And I, I really strongly believe that. Uh, I don't see him going to visit schools very often. He's done it on, you know, probably a handful of occasions. But, um, you know, he, he is someone who doesn't support the Department of Education as an institution. So uh, it's not surprising, but it is alarming because in in these two years, so many policies could really adversely affect this area. You've mentioned immigrants throughout some of your answers today. And one thing that's come up is the reauthorization of the DACA program, which is uh, some so this program that was implemented to help children of illegal immigrants who are starting businesses, who are in school, who are contributing to the society. And it's a group 
uh, it's a very large group and they have been in limbo since day one since the president was elected and they have no idea how he's going to go i personally don't know and one of the things that's been floated is he's going to hold this group hostage in return for a funding for the border wall or in exchange for um, funding for harvey or he's going to use this group as leverage so what's your position on daca i think there is overwhelming support for the program but at the same time there might have to be some sort of trade-off made by the democrats uh in order to keep this program i i don't believe it's an it's an economic trade-off because uh, the one thing that's been proven again and again is that immigrants specifically dreamers and as part of the daca program contribute to the gdp and add tax revenue, don't take away tax revenue. So the idea that from an economic or from a budgetary or fiscal perspective, that there's a trade-off between uh, Hurricane Harvey and DACA is you're basically mixing apples and oranges. The DACA program is a policy question uh, and has very little to do with economics. Um, He's holding it hostage and and basically saying, I'm not going to allow and support authorization of Harvey if you don't allow me to Believe, And what he's doing there is really playing to a very extreme base within the Republican Party. Most independents and most um, moderate Republicans support comprehensive immigration reform, support DACA in spirit and in practice. In New York State alone, if they went forward and repealed DACA and we lost those workers, those contributors to our society, it's over 30,000 people and $2 billion dollars of GDP would go away. So even taking aside the the that it's morally reprehensible to punish children for um, the the fact that their parents came here for a better life, that's a, a moral issue that I'm against. Partly because my grandfather was an unauthorized immigrant, and my father was the child of an, you know it, it it's very close to home for me. It's why I've been involved in immigrant rights since uh, the 1990s. But this idea that you're going to uh, punish these children who are now adults or in contributing to society uh, to appeal to a very small part of the population is part of the, the um, challenge we have as Democrats, which, to, which is to find and engage with people who aren't that extreme, people who believe in the importance of immigrants in our community, who, who show that the reason why the United States economy is in much better shape than Japan or Europe is because of immigrants, because of the economic engine. It, it is almost this, it, it shocks me when you, when you talk to people, it almost, I feel like I want to start Economics 101 as a required course in every high school in America, because what I see is people say, oh, it's a zero-sum game. There are only so many jobs, and if you have more immigrants, they take the jobs. And, I, and, and it, I'm scratching my head, and I'm going crazy, thinking, no, that is the antithetical to what the, the rules of, of macroeconomics tell you. If you have more people coming in, contributing, growing the economy, it creates more jobs. That's why in, in other countries, they have the, the shrinking population, they have an aging population, they don't have enough workers, and they have a huge problem. In America, we also have a problem that is lessened and mitigated by the fact that we have this immigrant community. We have a growing, thriving society because of what they bring. So I'm, uh, in a few things, as a representative, it's your responsibility to defend and uh represent the values of the people in your district. And again and again, John Faso hasn't actually represented the values and and needs of the people in his district. He keeps following the Mercers and the Trumps and their appeal to the very extreme right wing. There are friends of mine who are Republicans and independents who have already come out supporting me and my campaign because they feel as if John Faso has, if he ever was a moderate, has left and become one of them. Sure. And the the rhetoric against immigrants is incredibly alarming. It should be alarming for everyone. I think it's more alarming for people who are close closer to their immigrant ancestors, who everyone in this country has, and except with the exception of Native Americans, but that's a whole nother issue that uh, does not get talked about. But what we've seen is that in addition to this rhetoric against immigrants, and last week we saw the pardon of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, which has opened a whole legal can of worms, but it shows that there is this group in America that supports uh, these types of policies. And 
what it also showed is that what Sheriff Arpaio was doing in Maricopa County was implementing uh, immigration, anti-immigrant policies for local law enforcement. That's actually what the criminal contempt was for because he is not authorized to implement those policies. But we what we also saw this week is an authorization and a rollback of an Obama-era rule that permits heavy military equipment to be provided to law enforcement. And in the past few years, we've seen that the Black Lives Matter movement has grown and it has shed light on the fact that there's been this militarization of local law enforcement around the country. And that's really what the pardon of Joe Arpaio shows is that what can happen when that is taken to the extreme. So what are your thoughts on uh, some of these issues that have really come to the forefront, especially this week when we there was a video released of law enforcement in Georgia telling a woman that we only kill black people. This is something that happened in 2017. And it's shown what the rhetoric and this hateful, uh, these hateful thoughts that are coming out of at the highest levels can actually do on on the local level. So I have um, a lot of experience in dealing with extremism. And I think the rationale that um, the uh, right wing is using why they need to militarize police is they're concerned about um, riots, they're concerned about uh, terrorism. So that's the the, um, auspices under which they're rolling this out. My experience in uh, fighting terrorism for 30 years since my brother was killed is that it is, in fact, the opposite. Just like when it comes to international terrorism, it's not missile systems that are going to prevent you, protect you from terrorists. It's alliances, it's uh, intelligence services, it's discipline, it's vigilance, uh, it's institutions that work together. All of those aspects, there's no mention there of anything military, right? Those are all, in, if you go, and it's engagement with communities. If you want to engage a community to prevent it becoming... Uh, radicalized against you, you engage that community and make it part of your community, um, which is one of the approaches we've had for years. So what you're seeing now is an intentional attempt by the right wing to radicalize and to make this hyper-partisan. And they're looking to militarize the police as a strategy to show that it's law-abiding people against them, the other, which is a strategy, it's it's a classic fascist strategy to establish the other. And they're, they're saying we need this protection from our, for our police to protect you from them. Now, the them is broad in this case. The them is Black Lives Matters. The them is the immigrants. And they keep doing this as a way of reinforcing their nationalist uh, base and their nationalist values. Um, I have been completely against uh, and have been for years um, the use of militarization in response to any sort of domestic or international terrorist threat. And I think what you're seeing now is we need to, um, as a federal requirement, have every police officer for the police officer's benefit and just as importantly, the benefit of uh, the citizens. Every police officer, anytime they're on duty, have to have a camera on and make it a federal law. Now, that is when, and whenever you bring that up, because the civil rights abuses are often federal laws that they're abusing, because a lot of times the local law for people say, well, that you're, if it's the federal government getting involved in local law enforcement, sorry, because the risk of violating federal law is so high and so real now, as a federal requirement, everybody has to have it all, all of a sudden, what that will do, like it has when the videos sneak out, when people have them either done um, independently, you find that you can expose these issues. I don't think it's actually that much worse now than it's ever been. I think you've seen a mass incarceration of an entire uh, class of people, entire um, African-American men are in prison because of policies that we've put in place. You've had this discrimination. You've had police um, seen. Police have been abusing and taking advantage of African-Americans in very, very uh, most 99% of police officers do a great job and should be supported. But you have people who are discriminating against certain communities. We need to come out and support not only the, 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 the police officers, we need to support the communities as they, as they figure this out. And I think putting a, a, a light on it, shining a light on it, will enable us to deal with it. I don't think it's actually that much worse today, which is the saddest part. I just think it's becoming more, people are becoming more aware of it, and therefore we can deal with it better as a society. Because when you talk to people in communities, they, they kind of say, yeah, it's always been that way. 
Have you been uh, out to some of the communities in the area uh, that are affected? I mean, recently we saw just here in Kingston, there was an incident with a young, young black man where he had a beer outside, but he was pinned down by five officers and uh, charged with, you know, a very minor offense. But it's it's happening here. And, you know, it's being ignored by some of our elected officials, uh, specifically John Faso. And uh, I'm wondering, have you met with some of those activists and those groups that are kind of ignored by our current elected officials? Yeah, Citizens Action has been doing a great job, and I've marched with them through the, the streets of Kingston um, to to fight against uh, racial injustice. Um, also, out in uh, Monticello and Liberty, we have similar issues, and I've met with community leaders there to try to deal with it. It's not uh, it's in pockets in this district, um, rather than being. Uh, broad scale, but it is in very specific, it's, it's Kingston, it's Hudson, it's Monticello, it's Liberty. Um, you're seeing a lot of um, risk and exposure, but I also think you see because of the heightened awareness, you're starting to see people, activist groups, and hopefully political leaders starting to engage and um, getting the dialogue going so we can look at solutions to it. This has been so great. I think we've had We've touched on so many issues. I wish we could keep going. The only thing I haven't asked you, which I always ask, healthcare. I think there have been so many other things in the news. Um, I noticed that you support Medicare for All. Yeah, so I've been for Medicare for All since 2004, when Kirsten Gillibrand and I started an activist group called the Democratic Agenda. Uh, and top of our list, and that was in response to the fact that we felt the Democratic Party was rudderless and needed to stand for something. Uh, and top of our list was universal coverage, Medicare for all, back in 2004. Uh, we studied the issues. We looked at the opportunities. We met with uh, congressional leaders. We met with Rahm Emanuel, Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, dozens of congressional leaders, trying to tell them you, you need to stop being just anti-Bush, anti-war. That's not a policy. That's not something that's compelling. Um, so I've been for Medicare for All, but I've also been for it as a business person, someone who's responsible for dealing with healthcare costs. Uh, and I've looked at the efficiency that comes from Medicare for All for the whole society. Medicare is a right, uh, just like I believe education is a right. And I think we have to change the, the discussion to say it's a right, and we should find the, the most efficient and best way of delivering the most care to the most number of people. And that's why I've been a supporter of Medicare for All for over a decade. Great. I think that uh, the support for Medicare for All has pushed all eight of our candidates to come out and say it, which is really exciting. You know, this is... I welcome them all to the party. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, it's it's great that for the first time, Democrats are moving to the point where they can just say it. Whereas before it was a balancing act between will I get this class of donors if I say this? And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to what's to come and you know we know that john Fazzo doesn't support it at all so we'll see it'll make for some interesting debates for sure so one last thing fall's coming up great time in the catskills it's probably the most beautiful season here do you have any plans not political for yes this we have, fall? Uh, i have a funny feeling i'm spending a lot of time watching my daughter play soccer uh, throughout <laughs> the catskills uh, at various games i won't tell you hiking because i already did that today before i came to see you so i won't mention that um I did go, and I encourage people to do this. I did go zip lining this week at Hunter Mountain, the um, highest uh, zip line in North America, which is a tremendous view of getting to see uh, the Catskills. Uh, and we love it because it's it's when we first came here the first time was in the autumn, uh, so it's part of our uh, returning here. To it, it's part of what um, the season that means the most to us as a family uh, here in the Catskills. So we actually get to do some fire time. And yesterday, because it's 30 degrees up in uh, Greene County. Uh, it was 38 degrees the other morning. Um, we actually uh, would love to have been hiking, but unfortunately we were chopping wood because we didn't have enough wood left over from last year and we didn't expect to need it in the first September 1st. So we were loading up the uh, wood-burning stove last night. Oh, very cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, meeting with us and t talking to us. It's been a great conversation and we're looking forward to having you back again soon. Uh, best of luck on the, the fall great. fall campaign. Well, thank, you, thank you for all you're doing. Uh, and uh, thank you for your very great questions and for the great discussion. You are listening to Spotlight 19. Uh, that was Brian Flynn speaking with us. And thanks, Brian, again for coming on the show. And next week, we have a few things happening. Saja, tell us about what's coming up on the show next week. 
Sure, and we'll return with five fast Fazo facts next week when we'll be having Dustin Reedy on of New York 19 Votes. He actually started the grassroots organization that's responsible for a lot of the activity in the district, and they're actually having a voter canvas on September 24th, and they have locations all throughout the district, so if you're interested in... uh, Signing up to be part of that, you can go to ny19votes.com. That's ny19votes.com. So thank you so much for tuning in uh, to Spotlight 19. This was episode 13. And if you haven't already connected with us on social media, we're very easy to find on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Till next time, be well and keep the faith. Bye.